You're listening to the Hospital Medicine Podcast with Dr. Gil Parat. I have no conflicts of interest to report, and let's just jump right into it today. We are talking about Guillain-Barre syndrome, one of those diagnoses we never want to miss in the hospital. This is mostly an inflammatory condition of peripheral nerves, though the autonomic nervous system is involved to a significant degree in a minority of patients. It's an autoimmune disorder, and when the body produces antibodies against the peripheral nerves, there is resulting demyelination of those nerves. A big downside of that process is paralysis and other terrible problems from this terrible polyneuropathy that we will address. Let's quickly review some facts about the myelin sheath that surrounds nerves. Myelin is a fatty substance that consists of about 70% lipid and 30% protein, and it insulates the axons of both motor and sensory neurons. Myelin in the peripheral nervous system is made by Schwann cells that wrap the myelin about 50 to 300 times around a nerve fiber. It does more than just protect the nerve. The nerve fiber is a biologic cable or a biologic wire, if you will. The larger the diameter of a wire or nerve, the faster the propagation velocity will be. If you take the same diameter nerve fiber and cover one with myelination versus one without myelination, conduction is greatly increased for the myelinated fiber. Myelin's purpose is to increase propagation velocity and decrease the energy cost of nerve signaling and probably also serves the purpose of protecting the nerve to some degree. When a disease develops that causes demyelination, such as multiple sclerosis in the central nervous system or Guillain-Barre syndrome in the peripheral nervous system, that lack of myelin slows down the action potential and then you get symptoms. So what are the symptoms of Guillain-Barre syndrome? When doctors think of ascending paralysis, we usually think of Guillain-Barre. However, Guillain-Barre syndrome is really a group of demyelinating autoimmune syndromes, and depending on the subtype a patient has, the symptoms may vary. Progressive paralysis is a thing that is consistent among the heterogeneous subtypes of Guillain-Barre syndrome. Talking about the rare variants of Guillain-Barre syndrome is probably beyond the scope of what I'll be talking about today, and the more typical presentations that I will discuss, which is sometimes referred to as acute inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy, is responsible for about 90% of the cases of Guillain-Barre that you will see in the United States. So what are the causes of Guillain-Barre? In the popular press, I usually only see the mention of this disease when they mention vaccinations as possible triggering events. In particular, what is often mentioned is the influenza vaccine. This potential trend is looked at by an organization called the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, which is a group that looks at U.S. post-marketing adverse events in vaccines. They are co-sponsored by the CDC and the FDA to carry out that job. Since the antigenic composition of the influenza vaccine often varies from year to year, we'd expect there to be a variation in the amount of Guillain-Barre we see. 
And while not definitive, in a study printed in Journal of American Medical Association, November 24, 2004, it seems there likely is an occasional causal relationship between Guillain-Barre syndrome and influenza vaccine during some years, and pretty rare years, but it seems pretty minuscule even in those rare years. The CDC website says that for the year of 1976, the first year, and probably the most famous and associated year, there was a concern with the influenza vaccine. And the CDC says about that year, quote, the increased risk was approximately one additional case of Guillain-Barre syndrome per 100,000 people who got the swine flu vaccine, end quote. So as we all know, Influenza kills a lot of people each season, um, some seasons worse than others, and Guillain-Barre is pretty rare, uh, even with the vaccine. So that being said, it still seems like the vaccine is worth it if it does prevent the flu for you. I know there's a lot of emotions when it comes to vaccines on different sides of the aisle, and we'll just leave it at that. Much more likely than a vaccine, the triggering event is going to be a preceding infection maybe even influenza infection. But Campylobacter jejuni is the classic trigger. Campylobacters are motile, curved, gram-negative rods that are found in the GI tract of many farmed animals. If you are a farmer, you will be potentially exposed. If you undercook your steak or your chicken or handle it poorly, you might be exposed. There is a very well-published professor of microbiology at the University of Arizona whose name is Charles Gerba, and he said, quote, most of the common infections, cold, flu, diarrhea, you get environmentally transmitted either in the air or on surfaces you touch. I think people underrate surfaces, end quote. And, of course, he's correct about that. Most of the time with Campylobacter, you get a diarrheal illness and life goes on, and that's that. Sometimes it results in bloody diarrhea, sometimes it causes nonspecific abdominal pain, and appendectomies have been done because of Campylobacter jejuni pseudoappendicitis. However, about one in every 1,500 cases of the infection will eventually result in Guillain-Barre syndrome. And it is thought, depending on the source you read, that about 30% of all Guillain-Barre cases are indeed triggered by Campylobacter jejuni. Why does Campylobacter trigger Guillain-Barre syndrome? It's a process called molecular mimicry. As we all know, when you get an infection, your body makes antibodies to fight the infection, hopefully. What if the antibodies made to fight a pathogen like Campylobacter cross-react and fight myelin because Campylobacter has proteins similar to myelin? Well, then you have an autoimmune disease attacking your nerves because of that molecular mimicry like you see in Guillain-Barre syndrome. Very likely, other types of infections or certain vaccines occasionally cause Guillain-Barre syndrome also by the process of molecular mimicry. As can certain batches of heroin and tissue damage via surgery or epidurals, viruses like mononucleosis or HIV, and Hodgkin's disease and lupus, and etiologies we are yet to learn about. These are all potential triggers of Guillain-Barre syndrome. 
Needless to say, we've come a long way in understanding this disease, at least compared to the two French army doctors who first described it in two soldiers during World War I. There was actually another Frenchman who described similar cases of ascending paralysis before Drs. Guillaume and Dr. Beret back in 1859. Jean-Baptiste Landry was the man's name, and some people even refer to the syndrome as landry guillain Beret syndrome in certain articles, but overall that extra-long name hasn't stuck, and apparently Dr. Guillaume who didn't die until 1961, was outraged at the idea of adding Landry's name to the syndrome, so perhaps he remains happy in his grave that he still gets half the credit instead of only a third of the credit. Well, let's get back to the symptoms of Guillain-Barre syndrome. If you see acute, progressive, ascending paralysis with areflexia, and there is relative symmetry of the symptoms, you've pretty much nailed the diagnosis, particularly after a recent diarrheal or respiratory illness. Symptoms tend to peak within about four weeks. The one thing you want to watch out for is a spinal cord process like transverse myelitis or compression of the spinal cord that clinically tends to present with more of a sharply demarcated level of symptoms. MRI can usually tease that possibility out if there is a concern. If you have an acute and evolving peripheral nervous system presentation over a matter of days or weeks, the most common one doctors will see is indeed Guillain-Barre syndrome. Pain is also common in the lower extremities, the flank areas, the back, and possibly other areas. Paresthesias are common. The author of a review article from the April 23, 1992 review article about Guillain-Barre syndrome in the New England Journal of Medicine speculated that, quote, the spontaneous discharges in demyelinated sensory nerves probably cause paresthesias and pain, end quote. So again, it's not just the motor nerves causing weakness, but also the sensory nerves that are involved. Early Guillain-Barre syndrome is difficult to identify if it's not rapidly progressive, and it can take a few days to become obvious. Sometimes these patients present with weird numbness and aches and feel a bit anxious and obviously get blown off like most patients that present with nonspecific complaints and no obvious etiology. Sometimes unsteady gait is a complaint, so don't just think about stroke and cerebellar diseases when you have ataxic patients. Reduced or absence of deep tendon reflexes, weakness, and sensory loss are again very important to look for. So how do you make the diagnosis other than clinically? Lumbar puncture can help. A classic finding in cerebral spinal fluid, though not specific, is elevated protein levels without an increase in cell counts. If the lumbar puncture is done too early, the findings may not be there. Wait a few days and you will see elevated protein without pleocytosis, usually at that point. If you do see more than 50 white blood cells in the cerebral spinal fluid, definitely question yourself about whether the patient really has Guillain-Barre, as another diagnosis seems likely. 
Nerve conduction studies are very helpful. My current hospitals don't have the ability to do inpatient nerve conduction studies. If I want them done, I must refer to a neurologist as an outpatient, and Guillain-Barre is, of course, an inpatient disease. If you can get them done and demyelination abnormalities are seen, that is extremely helpful. So what are some of the big complications of Guillain-Barre syndrome? Respiratory failure by means of paralysis of respiratory muscles is probably the biggest feared outcome of Guillain-Barre syndrome and one you will see in your Guillain-Barre patients. About a third of patients will end up needing a ventilator. I serially order forced vital capacities in patients with Guillain-Barre or even the possible diagnosis of Guillain-Barre since sometimes I'm unsure what they have at first. What is a forced vital capacity? It is the volume of gas exhaled from the completely inflated lungs during a maximal inspiratory effort. A forced vital capacity of less than 20 milliliters per kilogram is when I strongly consider intubation and feel concerned about impending respiratory failure. An article published out of France in 2003 in the journal Critical Care Medicine looked at other factors that likely predict respiratory failure. The factors identified as worrisome included fast onset of symptoms, inability to cough, inability to lift the head or elbows, and inability to stand. Autonomic instability is another concern that you need to look for, particularly arrhythmias concern me, but Blood pressure fluctuations and urinary tension and GI symptoms are also manifestations. Be practical. If your patient is not walking well and she is having orthostatic hypotension and is left in a chair with nobody in the room, a bad event may occur. What is the prognosis? Recovery is actually the norm for Guillain-Barre syndrome. Prognosis is favorable in regards to survival, though obviously not for everybody. The one case I've seen die of this disease was so terrible on so many levels. The guy had just literally retired three days before the onset of symptoms. Him and his wife had just purchased a home in a warm climate to spend their years relaxing, and he was on a ventilator within hours of presenting to the hospital. It was a long ICU stay that didn't end well, and I still get really bummed out about that case. Now, I'm going to quote the medical information resource up to date about prognostics, and their quote is this. At six months, about 65% of patients with Guillain-Barre syndrome are able to walk independently. Overall, about 80% of patients with Guillain-Barre either recover completely or are left with only minor deficits that do not interfere with activities of daily living. These minor deficits are seen in about 15% of patients and can vary from mild foot drop or balance problems to moderate weakness or painful dysesthesias in the limbs. Approximately 5-10% to of patients with Guillain-Barre syndrome have a prolonged course with several months of ventilator dependency and very delayed and incomplete recovery. About 3% of patients remain wheelchair-bound. Yet it bears repeating that most will do well. When you talk with your patients and families about this disease, that kind of cautious reassurance is important. 
let them know that at first things will likely get worse, maybe for a few weeks before they get better. Once things start to improve, it's probably that within many weeks, many symptoms will completely disappear, if not totally disappear. There can be some permanent paralysis, and contractures and other possibilities may also stick around. A study out of the Netherlands in October of 2010 in the journal Neurology did a questionnaire of patients who had Guillain-Barre syndrome, and 38% responded that they still had pain from it after one year. That's better than the 66% who had pain during the acute phase of the illness, but still not a good thing to be having symptoms at such a late date. The overall mortality rate is probably about 3% looking at cohort data published in the journal Neurology in 2008. Other sources have stated higher numbers than 3%, such as a study also in the journal Neurology out of Italy in 2003, in which that study showed a 5% mortality. So let's start talking treatment. As mentioned, these patients often have pain because of the possibility of ileus. Sometimes you want to try and avoid opioids in these patients. There actually is some data supporting the use of carbamazepine and gabapentin to reduce the amount of opioids needed in patients with Guillain-Barre syndrome. Remember that these patients don't have alteration of their cognition. Their brain is just fine. It's their peripheral nerves that are the problem. So please, please, please talk to these patients extensively, even though they sometimes can't talk to you. If they're intubated or they have the frequently seen oral pharyngeal weakness, they may have trouble speaking to you. It's a fascinating disease, but the person behind the disease is more fascinating and always terrified. I see this disease roughly about every two years, and these patients are under a lot of stress. If there is a local Guillain-Barre support group and the patient wants to talk with them, that can be helpful to have a person who recovered from it visit that patient in the hospital, as they are usually there a long time. As far as specific treatments to slow the disease, you have the two options of high-dose intravenous gamiglobulin or removing antibodies from the blood by plasma exchange, also known as plasmapheresis. Consensus statements say they are equal in efficacy, but let's break down the data a little bit. Plasmapheresis was the first modality to be proven in trials to increase muscle strength, reduce time on the ventilator, and result in a better recovery. Notice I did not mention mortality as one of the things treatment improves, though one would think less time on the ventilator and less time in the hospital could have that benefit. It's just not a proven outcome. Time for a New England Journal of Medicine quote from an unblinded European study, uh, also published in the April 23rd, 1992 uh, date that I already talked about also having a review article that I mentioned. Now, it probably goes without saying, it would be very difficult to blind a study that included the invasive option of plasma exchange. And here's the conclusion of the authors of that study. They say, quote, in the acute Guillain-Barre syndrome, treatment with intravenous immune globulin is at least as effective as plasma exchange and may be superior. Um, in that discussion, the authors also say, and I quote, In this trial, the median time until recovery of independent locomotion 
a reasonable time for hospital discharge was 14 days less in the immune globulin group than in the plasma exchange group. In addition, the mean period of intubation was seven days less in the immune globulin group, reflecting a similar decrease in days spent in the intensive care unit, end of quote. So I personally like IVIG better because, one, I don't have the delay of setting up plasma exchange. It's more comfortable. There are no big catheters usually needed like you have to have in plasmapheresis and all the potential medical complications of having a big catheter. And it's what I would prefer for myself if any of you ever treat me for this condition. The dose of IVIG is 0.4 grams per kilogram once daily for five days. And since those bed scales are always way off in hospitals and you can't often walk because of the paralysis from this disease, my weight is currently 81 kilograms when you calculate out that dose. Well, what about combining both IVIG and plasma exchange. It's a bust. Pick one or the other. The evidence behind saying that is a Lancet study from January 1997 that starts on page 225, and I'll quote them. The primary analysis of the reduction in amount of disability after four weeks showed that a small but not significant advantage for the combined regimen compared with either treatment alone. That's the end of the quote. That trial also compared plasma exchange with IVIG in addition to the combination of the two together. While their results showed equal benefit of IVIG and plasmapheresis, the authors did make a comment about their interpretation of the results, and that quote is, On the grounds of equal therapeutic benefit, greater convenience, and similar overall cost, IVIG may be preferable to plasmapheresis for treatment of adult patients with Guillain-Barre syndrome, end of quote. Now, steroids, while they are given in just about every autoimmune disease known to man, they do not have a role in Guillain-Barre syndrome. They used to be given, that's how this disease was treated, until the data showed they had no benefit in two randomized controlled trials. These patients are often in the hospital and rehab a long time. And deep vein thrombosis prophylaxis is important, as well as watching for pressure ulcers and other potential complications. If you have access to a really good inpatient rehabilitation center like we have at my hospital, we got great therapists and great physical medicine doctors, that can be a huge benefit as well for these patients. Well, You've been listening to the Hospital Medicine Podcast with Dr. Gil Parat. As always, if you're finding any value in listening to this, please let me know. Leave a review on iTunes. It definitely helps the exposure of this podcast to other people. And thank you for your time.